Alright, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Stone Pages Archeo News Podcast number 257. And as always, I'm your host, Philip Hansen. Now, today we have brought you exciting news from all over the world. But before we get to the news, I would like to thank all of the people who are donating to the Stone Pages website. All of your donations, of course, keep not only me in work, but also our team of editors, as well as the ego and the site running, and also helps pay for our bandwidth so you can keep listening to this delicious podcast every single time it comes out. Now, of course, I did mention Diego and our team of editors who have lovingly collected several news from around the web from several different sources. And if you wish to view the source for each of the stories, you can go to news.stonepages.com to view the source for all of these stories as well as any stories that we did not cover. Now, without further ado, sit back, relax, have yourself a cup of coffee or maybe a cup of tea, and let's get to the news. Starting off in England, because we don't have any Stonehenge news, we actually have the news of the British Pompeii found in Cambridgeshire. We'll then be going to the US to look at Native American footprints, and how they actually came to be, as well as other depressions found in the dirt. Staking with the idea of warmer climates, we go to Spain, where we look at a Neolithic tomb, and the ideas of community during the Neolithic period. Following that, we'll need to put our captain hats on and go sailing on some Bronze Age boats. After that, we need to go back to school and look at some common measurements for megalithic sites. Then we have some shiny news today as we look at Bulgarian gold and a 7,000-year-old wall. Apart from this, we also look at the origin of the first farmers from the Middle East, possibly being from Turkey. Not Turkey farmers, though. And last but certainly not least, we have to go out and be crime stoppers looking at a Stone Age murder from Kenya. All that will be covered in today's podcast, so let's get to it. And now, as promised, the first story of podcast number 257, which is not on Stonehenge. It is, however, on Britain's Pompeii, which was recently uncovered in Cambridgeshire. Now, for those of you living in Cambridgeshire, you do not need to pack up your bags and move. There is actually no active volcano there. However, what there is is a quarry called Must Farm, which lies, of course, in Cambridgeshire, where archaeologists have recently found an amazing Bronze Age village dating from around 1000 to 800 BC. The houses on site were preserved after they fell into the river as a result of a fire, where the silt of the river helped preserve the houses and all of its contents within, some of the pots still containing meals uh, from the site. Now, so far, the archaeologists at the site believe to have found five houses, but they are not yet certain. The work to uncover the settlement is still continuing as there are beliefs and very big fears that the fall of the water level sometime in the future could destroy some of the preservation at the site, meaning that not all finds will be preserved in situ. Now, we can expect a lot of good news from the area, hopefully, at least as earlier test trenches at a site nearby called Whitlessey revealed small cups, bowls, and jars, as well as exotic glass beads forming part of a necklace. Textiles made out of plant fibers such as those found on Lime Tree Bark were also unearthed at that site, hinting at a sophistication not usually associated with the Bronze Age. Now, Duncan Wilson, who is the chief executive of Historic England, described the settlement and its contents as an extraordinary time capsule, adding that a dramatic fire 3,000 years ago, combined with the subsequent waterlogged preservation, has left to us a frozen moment in time, which gives us a graphic picture of life in the Bronze Age. 
David Gibson, who works for the Cambridge Archaeological Unit and also leads the excavation, also said that so much has been preserved, we can actually see everyday life during the Bronze Age in the round. It's prehistoric archaeology in 3D with an unsurpassed finds assemblage both in terms of range and quantity. Now, the finds so far have actually been really, really amazing. Uh, Apart from well-preserved roof timbers, of course, from the roundhouses falling down, there has been other pieces of timber clearly showing tool marks and a perimeter of wooden posts which are known as a palisade. Archaeologists digging even further down, about 2 meters or 6 feet, have also found preserved footprints, which are believed to be from the people who actually used to live there. Now, a number of Bronze Age settlements have, of course, been preserved in England. However, as Mr. Gibson says, none of these settlements have been preserved as well as the Must Farm site, adding that most don't have any timber remaining, just post holes and marks where posts would have been. So far, this is unique as we have the roof structure as well. Now, I will admit, I have actually been following the progress of this site for some time. And of course, if you go to news.stonepages.com, you can find the source for this story. But I would also like to take the opportunity to maybe make a bet for our competitors because of the fact that Must Farm actually has a Facebook group. And you can go in and look at all the stuff they're doing. They actually show some of the 3D models they're making using photogametry. There are also a lot of different pictures in there just from everything. And it is a wonderful site. I wish I could be excavating it. It makes me wish I was actually a prehistoric archaeologist and not a medieval archaeologist. And speaking of footprints, I say we go to the American Southwest where the USA's oldest human footprints have recently been found. The footprints themselves were found north of Tucson, Arizona, which lies roughly 800 kilometers to east-southeast of Los Angeles and are believed to be about 2,500 years old. It is also believed they have been left behind by some ancient farmers, their children, and dogs while they were tending to their fields, as they were found among the crops and irrigation ditches that form a 15 square meter field. And these footprints are actually distinct enough that the movement of specific individuals can be traced over the entire field. It is believed that the footprints were actually preserved by a sudden flood from a nearby creek soon after the prints themselves were made, which covered them in a mica-rich sandy sediment and formed some sort of mineralized cast for the footprints to be preserved in. Now, the footprints and the fields seem to date back to the early agricultural period, which spans from 2500 BC to about 50 AD, when the American Southwest first began to see farmers cultivating crops in the area. Now, the footprints from the area are not the only unique find, because apart from the footprints, the field, as well as the irrigation channels, archaeologists have also been able to find traces and depressions where archaic farmers actually placed individual plants of corn or other crops And it is believed that these depressions may actually stretch throughout the entire area and not just the 15 square meters that were uncovered. This is said by Jerome Hesse, who is the project manager for SWCA Environmental Consultants and is also conducting the study. He says, so we've excavated a number of these planting depressions and will run samples for pollen and phytoliths to get a sense of what was being grown. Apart from this, Archaeology Southwest, which is a non-profit organization, is conducting 3D photo scans of the site to create a digital model. They have also cast some of the footprints using synthetic molds, while others have been extracted and sent to nearby museums. The site, however, does sadly lie in the path of road construction, so therefore it will be destroyed at some point, but we can at least hope that 
we can get as much information from this as possible. And from Arizona, I say we stay in the warmer climates and go to Spain, where a Neolithic tomb actually reveals that community not only existed in life, but also in death. Now, Neolithic people are actually thought to have introduced a wide variety of burial rituals, which include the megalithic tombs, which were then used over extended periods of times, and as sites for not only burials, but other ritual acts. Some of the tombs from the Neolithic period actually show signs of not only reburial, but also treating bodies after the death. Now, Neolithic tombs might just become even more interesting after the find of a 3 meter diameter tomb at Alto de Rionoso, which is 250 kilometers north of Madrid, and the following study of the tomb, which we are covering now, represents the widest integrative study of Neolithic collective burials in Spain, and is actually a good example of a non-megalithic burial. The study used not only archaeology, but also osteology, molecular genetics, and stable isotope analysis to study the number of individuals buried, as well as their age, sex, body, height, diseases, injuries, mitochondrial DNA profiles, and kinship relations, as well as their mobility and diet. What they found was that the grave was used for over 100 years, around 3700 BC, which is the late Neolithic era in Iberia. Now, the finds of the area suggest that the tomb originally was a wooden burial chamber made out of uh, wood, mud, and other organic materials, which was then later dismantled and replaced by a monumental megalithic structure in the form of a stone mound. Now, while the Bronze Age layer is in some ways interesting, containing two individuals from around 1700 and 1500 BC, the layer was disturbed by agriculture activity and was therefore not included in the study. Now, the Neolithic layers are actually more interesting as the burials in these layers consist of 47 individuals with a very high density in burials that includes males, females, and adolescents, though children uh, aged 0 to 6 years old were underrepresented in the group. Apart from this, the bodies also showed a moderate amount of pathologies, which include degenerative joint diseases and healed fractures, head injuries, and tooth decay, standard Neolithic stuff. Now, while the archaeological evidence itself is quite interesting, the mitochondrial DNA profiles provide an even better insight into the area, showing that we're not just talking about random individuals, but a local community that stayed in the same place for quite some time with some of the individuals being buried at the bottom layer, showing very close familial relationships. The strontium analysis further supports this idea, showing that there were only a few people who were likely to have spent their childhood in different geological areas around the... The strontium analysis further supports this idea, showing that the majority of the individuals grew up locally in the area, with only a few showing signs of possibly having been in different geological environments. The carbon and nitrogen isotope analysis show that the group was not only homogenous in their locality, but also in their access to food, with cereals and small ruminants, such as sheep and goats, being the possible sources of nutrition. This is typical of the lifestyle seen during the Neolithic period on the Spanish Plateau. Now, it should be noted that the Neolithic layers are not abundant in artifacts, though they do include personal items such as stone necklaces or pendants, as well as grave goods such as polished axes or bone scrapers. The layers are also characterized by a distinct lack of pottery in the megalithic tombs, at least in the earlier periods of the use. 
These Neolithic tombs, as well as other Neolithic tombs seen in Europe, do represent a type of collective burial with a strong focus on the communal identity. And it is actually not until the Copper and Bronze Ages that we do start to see a social differentiation increasing within the individuals as individuals came to the forefront and the group fell to the background. And now, ladies and gentlemen, to quote the band Styx, come sail away with me on the first Bronze Age boats. Log boats are some of the first boats that are known and are thought to predate pottery and agriculture by thousands of years. During the Bronze Age that lasted from roughly 2000 BC to 500 BC in Northern Europe, logboats actually began to change. And this is according to research done by Ole Thiel of Kestholm of the uh, Denmark's Roskilde Museum. The results of this research may actually show that the changing of the design of the Bronze Age boats had a broader cultural transformation with it. Castorm studied 110 log boats, which were recovered from sites in Scandinavia, Western Europe, Britain, and Ireland, saying that around 2000 BC, log boats from across this vast region begin to display similarities in design. Logs were carved to have slender, vertical sides and flat bottoms that made them more stable. Many were more than 10 meters long, and some were as long as 15 meters. It is also during this time that plank boats begin to appear, which are larger and more stable than log boats, and were used mainly for ocean voyages. Now, it is originally believed that this type of plank boat during the Bronze Age was exclusively a British design. However, Castom believes that the plank boat technology was actually more widespread due to the fact that there are similarities between log boats found throughout Western Europe and Northern Europe, showing a great deal of contact between people separated by the vast amount of distance between them. It should be noted that while the plank boats and longboats themselves are actually quite large, they are not the most advanced watercraft of their time. The Greeks, Egyptians, as well as other cultures of the Mediterranean Sea actually used sailing ships, Those sails themselves wouldn't have been used in Northern Europe until around the Iron Age, during the 7th or 8th century AD. However, it should be noted that when the first sails begin arriving in the north, they are not copies of their Mediterranean counterparts. Instead, the early Scandinavian boat builders adapted their Bronze Age plank boats to fit the sail. Castellum has actually shown that the Northern European Iron Age sailing ships used the same type of cleats to secure the planks to the boat as the earlier Bronze Age plank boats. Now, this differs from the generally accepted fact, which states that the Iron Age boats as we know them came from a completely different building tradition. Instead, Castellum suggests that the Northern European tradition of building the Viking longships as we know them actually had its roots in Bronze Age plank boats. And now for our next story, we'll actually be looking at megalithic monuments and their common unit of measurement, as there is a new one that has been recently suggested. And I'm sure we're all familiar with common units of measurement, such as inches, feet, yards, centimeters, meters, pi as well. Sorry, forget about the last one. I haven't had math in about six or seven years, uh, so forgive me. Anyways, despite my ineptitude in mathematics, there is actually a new common unit of measurement that has been suggested for megalithic structures. This comes as the result of nearly 40 years of research done by Norman Stockdale and Peter Harris, 
who have concluded that a unit of measurement was actually used to build all of these stone circles that we see in Britain. However, this is actually not a new idea. This was actually proposed by another researcher, Professor Tom, a professor emeritus of engineering at Oxford University and an expert in astro-navigation as well as surveying, who published a book called Megalithic Sites in Britain in 1967. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty, it is important to establish the context of what we're looking at. There are, in England at least, three main periods of stone circle construction, the early, the middle, and the late period. The early period, which ranges from the middle to the late Neolithic, and is dated to around 3400 to 2700 BC, has stone circles mainly being built in the northern half of the United Kingdom and Ireland. The Middle Period, which ranges from the Late Neolithic to the Early Bronze Age, that is 2700 BC to 2000 BC, have stone circles that are scattered throughout the United Kingdom, but are concentrated around Cornwall and Brittany. And the last period, which is also the largest uh, period for stone circle construction, is seen during the Middle Bronze Age, which is 2000 to 1200 BC, and the stone circles here are mainly concentrated in Scotland. After these periods, few stone circles are erected, and none are known to be later than 1000 BC. Now, despite the separation in time, it has still been possible for researchers to determine that there is some form of uniformity in the construction of these stone circles. This is mainly seen in the complex geometries of the flattened circles, the egg-shaped rings, and ellipses that are built throughout these periods, which are, of course, identical and occur in all the regions. Now, as I'm sure you all know, there has been suggestions as to why they were built this way, which range from the key stations of the moon throughout its entire cycle to solar and equinoctial sunrises and sunsets. This point has actually been addressed by Peter Harris, who says that while we cannot think of all these structures solely as observatories, the measures incorporate key astronomical data into the monument design. Now, the idea of a common unit of measurement for stone circles is actually not a entirely new one, and it is actually a quite popular opinion. One researcher agreeing with this is Aubrey Burrell, who believes that there is actually evidence for a common unit of measurement, as others have been suggested, such as the Perth and the Cork Yard. Now, as mentioned before, the old research does differ from the new Professor Tom, in his time, proposed that the standard unit of length, which he calls the megalithic yard, was 2.72 imperial feet, that is 83 centimeters, which he based on the concentrations of values at 10, 20, 30, and 40 megalithic yards for the diameter of the stone circles, and the perimeters usually being a multiple of 12.5 megalithic yards. His data also shows that there is a high percentage of similar perimeter lengths for the stone circles. However, Tom's own research looked mainly at a mathematical background for how the megalithic structures were planned. Stockdale and Harris's new research proposes an incorporation of lunar and solar values as well as the numerical values from Tom's own research. The result of this is that the standard unit of measurement actually becomes slightly smaller, being 36 centimeters instead of the earlier proposed 83 this new unit of measurement is slightly smaller than the earlier one, being 36 centimeters instead of 83 centimeters. And it is believed that this was widely used from around 3000 BC and onwards. 
they have decided to call this new unit of measurement the megalithic foot, which can be subdivided into 56 equal parts, which then equal one megalithic inch. And now for our next story, let's go to Bulgaria, where we have a 7,000-year-old fortress, as well as some ancient gold, which is always interesting in archaeology. The wall itself is around 7,000 years old, which places it in the Copper Age, and is made up of wooden pillars that are 40 centimeters wide, and has been plastered with clay on both sides to form a palisade. The diameter of the wall would have been about 50 meters, with the wall itself being roughly 80 centimeters wide and most likely up to 3 meters tall, and it seems to have been maintained for roughly 1,000 years. The settlement within the walls seems to have been inhabited in the 5th and 4th millennium BC and was engaged in a variety of agricultural activities as well as cattle breeding, hunting, and gathering. The site itself was originally discovered back in 1955 with six-meter-thick archaeological layers and is actually known for the aforementioned gold, which is known as the Hotnitsa gold treasure. The gold treasure from Hotnitsa is contemporary with the Vana Calcolithic Necropolis uh, gold treasure, which was found on the Black Sea. However, one of the gold spirals from Hotnitsa is actually deeper than any of the ones that were found in Varna and is therefore believed to be the world's oldest gold. Apart from this, the original excavation, which lasted from 1956 to 1959, also found a variety of homes, including 20 perfectly aligned thatched roof one-room houses, which were made out of wooden poles. A new excavation in the area from 2015 has managed to find a lot of very large finds, one of which is a 6,400-year-old wooden floor that was preserved by a flood in the area. The floor itself seems to have been preserved in its entirety and was held up by beams that were placed one meter apart. Apart from the floor, there were also a variety of small finds, roughly 500 small finds to be exact, which was mostly flint, made out of very high-quality flint from northeastern Bulgaria, though other tools, which include a bone dagger, a copper needle, stone claw hammers, and many other items were also found. One of the very remarkable finds from the area is the 6,400-year-old ceramic vessel-lid that was found on site. The vessel-lid depicts a male head with a very large nose and a pointed chin, and there are signs on the man's face which are shaped like butterflies and are believed to be tattoos. One of the archaeologists on site, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce your name, Alexander Kohatsev, says that this is a very rare find because the anatomical features of the face are presented in great detail. We have found other depictions of male heads with beards, but the presence of a cap shows that this man enjoyed a more special status. In the past, we have found a similar lid in Petko Kavelovo, a male head with beard braids wearing the same kind of cap, but it was depicted with spirals, not dots. Apart from this, two small bone figurines which showed female features were also found. These are actually about 8.5 millimeters long and only 3 millimeters wide. There is also another new find of a miniature model of a ceramic vessel, which is the second of its kind found at Honitsa. The site of Honitsa is a very interesting site as it presents commercial ties with the Black Sea, the Mediterranean, and areas north of the Danube. It is believed that the settlement itself was destroyed by invading nomadic tribes from the north, and after about 800 years of constant settlement in the area and convergence with the native populations would go on to form what we know today as the ancient civilization of Thrace. And now for our penultimate story, let's look at the early farming of the Middle East. 
Recent evidence from a study done in Stockholm could possibly show that the early farmers actually originated from Turkey. Now, as I'm sure you probably know from listening to the podcast, the general idea is that the early farmers of Europe actually originated in the Middle East and then moved in towards Europe. The question then becomes: If people agree on that farming started in the Middle East, then where in the Middle East did farming first originate from? And after that, how do we figure out where in the Middle East it actually originated? The area that has been suggested as the origin of farming in the Middle East is Anatolia in modern-day Turkey. This is due to the fact that occupation of the area stretches all the way back to the Paleolithic area. It is also conjectured that the language group that we know as the Indo-European language group originated from this area. Now, as I mentioned, the research is being done by researchers from Stockholm, specifically the Archaeological Research Laboratory at Stockholm University, who have been studying the DNA of human remains found within the area, known as Kumtava, which lies close to the site of Troy. It is also known as the oldest permanent settlement in that area. While the group has yet to actually publish their result, the initial results are looking good and lead them to believe that this is the area in which farming originated. Jan Stora, who's the leader of the team and also an associate professor in osteoarchaeology, is quoted saying that it is complicated to work with material from this region. It is hot and the DNA is degrading. But if you want to understand how the process that led from a hunter-gatherer society proceeding to a farming society, it is this material that we need to exhaust. Now, ladies and gentlemen, for the last story of Archaeo News number two hundred and fifty-seven, I actually have some murder mysteries for you, and it's actually in a slightly warmer place than Midsummer. So put your CSI glasses on, cause we have to. So put your CSI glasses on, cause we have to solve a stone cold murder from the Stone Age. These murders actually come from Lake Turkana at the site of Nataruk, which lies in Kenya, and shows clear signs of murder. This comes as evidence from 12 skeletons found in the area dating back to around 10,000 years ago, out of which the 10 bear marks of a violent death and 2 bear possible marks of bondage. Which, of course, provides new evidence that the hunter-gatherers were not the peaceful people which we believe them to be. As I mentioned, two of the bodies show signs of having been tied up and left for dead at the area. Now, as Marta Mirasanlar from Cambridge University notes, evidence for intergroup violence among prehistoric hunter-gatherers is extremely rare. However, the leader of the excavation still found some. Her and her colleagues discovered the bodies at the site of Nataruk, which lies near the edge of Lake Turkana in 2012, among which are the 10 bodies that show very clear signs of lethal trauma. The traumas to the body seem to be either the result of crushing with a heavy tool or possibly from arrows being shot at the individuals, which indicate that not only were the attackers very far away, but this was an intentional attack. Some of the bodies also suffer from broken knees and hand bones, and more disturbingly, one woman who was advanced in her pregnancy shows signs of having been tied up and left for dead, which is supported by the positioning of her body and limbs that suggest the bindings of the hand and feet. Apart from the bodies, stone tools were also found in the area, 131 with the bodies and hundreds more around the area. Now, it should be noted that while the ancient people founded the site, which dated from around 9,500 to 10,500 years ago, according to the authors, none of them have 
Now, while heavy trauma was inflicted to the bodies, the authors say that the bodies, which date from around 9,500 to 10,500 years ago, show no clear signs of trophy-taking, such as scalping or possibly the removal of arms. Now, it should be noted that the site at Nataruk was not the first or the oldest site to show clear signs of intergroup violence. The oldest evidence for intergroup warfare comes as the result of an excavation done by the University of Bordeaux in Sudan, showing a graveyard from around 13,000 years ago, where they could actually conclude that not only was there evidence for warfare, but racial warfare at that. The bodies from the graveyard show two distinct types, one group being relatively tall with short torsos and projecting features as well as broad noses, while the other group was shorter, had a longer torso and flatter faces. The finds from this graveyard show that the battles of Sudan were not just a bad-tempered blip on the radar, but something that was a reoccurring theme. Now, while the main reason for the slaughters of the area cannot be known, it has been suggested that it could be for one of two reasons. One reason, of course, is the suggestion of uh, racial warfare due to violent tendencies towards outside groups, though the other is that due to the fact Turkana is actually a fertile site, that there was a very heavy struggle over resources in the area. Now, this is, of course, a hotly debated topic due to the fact that some anthropologists do believe that the hunter-gatherers were peaceful people, and if one group encountered anything unpleasant in the area, they could just move on due to the fact that there was little in ways of houses and permanent residency, hence the hunter-gatherer idea. However, some people do postulate that the hunter-gatherers were more violent than previously imagined, and that actually that the development of stone weapons actually coincides with the spread of prehistoric populations throughout the world. Whatever the case may be, the finds from Nazaruk show intentional killing of a small... Whatever the case may be, the archaeologists that excavated Nazaruk believe that the Nazaruk finds show intentional killing of a small group of foragers, which, as they say, constitutes unique evidence of a warfare event among the hunter-gatherer populations in prehistory. Now we have sadly reached the end of our podcast, and I would like to thank you for listening to podcast number 257. If you're hungry for some more news, you can always go to news.stonepages.com to view the sources for all of our stories, as well as any stories that we did not cover, and all of our previous stories. If you cannot get enough of us on that site, you can always go to Twitter and follow us using the Twitter handle at StonePages, where you can follow all of our news as well if you're an archaeologist on the go. Also, just a fun little thing to do. Why not tweet uh, what your height is in megalithic feet? I am personally 5 megalithic feet tall. I would like to see how uh, tall the rest of our user base is in megalithic feet, though. So you can go to the website and look at the precise number for uh, better conversions. Now, without further ado, I sadly have to say goodbye, and I hope to see you soon. Goodbye! Goodbye!